Well, don't don't forget, there's no quota on them. We still have three weeks to go, so God doesn't have a quota on things. We keep trying to put quotas on him, but I'm only saying that because you might have five more. Who knows? You know, or truly. truly. I would like us to pray again for my friend Jamie, who has Lou Gehrig's disease. And she just found out that um, her lung capacity has gone from 50 to 30%. And um, she, she can't speak, she yep. can't eat, she can't, and yep. you know, and she, she's a young woman. You told, in the 60s? I can't. Yeah, well, actually, she's, she's in her late 50s. 50s, yeah. Yeah, yeah she is. And we're, we're, you know, she's, we just pray for God's peace Anybody, for her and her family. Yep. Anybody else? Barb, what's the baby's name? Wyatt. Say Wyatt? Wyatt. Wyatt. Wyatt Joseph. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you the gift of yourself to us, um, particularly in the Mass this morning. Um, it's a season of Advent. Um, you are, um, you and our church um, are asking all of us to take seriously this time of preparation. Your words so often in this period get serious and sometimes warning, um, severe. It's a reminder of how much is at stake for us to lose if we don't take um, your call seriously. Yesterday you, you asked us to do your will, aware of the consequences. If we didn't, strengthen all of us in our efforts to give our wills to you, to do what's asked, to strengthen our efforts in obedience, to correct our wills in this time, so that when Christmas does come, it's not just a holiday joy, um, it's a joy of being more one with you in the new life that you offer um, each Christmas season. Um, help us to do that, all of us. Um, we offer um, our thanks for the blessings that Wyatt um, has received. Um, watch over that child. Surround him with your protection. Help him to grow um, healthily. Um, and for the parents and friends um, to be strengthened in their faith by all that happens. Um, we're asked to always be grateful, even for difficulties. So for all of us, when surprise blessings come, help us to take a joy. Um, when difficulties come, help us to stay grounded in you your words yesterday, when the winds come and the buffetings come um, to hold our course, um, most especially when things are hard. It's easy to get thrown off. Strengthen us, please, that we stand with you steadfast in all that we do with our faith. And um, for Janie, um, be with her. Her life seems to be diminishing quickly. Um, if this is um, her time, help her to find a greater strength in her faith, um, to willingly offer herself 
knowing she'll join you. Um, um, when we enter a cross, it's where we should meet you if we meet you anywhere before we go to the kingdom. Be with her and um, especially be with um, those who care for her. Um, I ask that all of us um, not get caught up in the hysteria of Christmas. Um, it, it is a hard time. Um, suicides increase. Um, people's expectations go through the roof. Um, when they're sad or abandoned or whatever they're left with in Christmas, it's so easy to despair at one extreme. It's so easy um, to overdo everything in another. During this season, help us to keep your peace, to stay with you, um, be measured by you in all that we do, so that when Christmas comes, our, our joy, like a, a fire glowing, um, when it reaches its, its, its perfect beauty, um, that our hearts will glow in joy, being one with you. We offer these prayers, Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can you all take out wild swans? Yeats poem. <clears throat> I was thinking about doing a, um, a poem by Blake because I was searching for something. Um, we didn't. I don't think we did a poem last week. Um, a poem by Blake called Auguries of Innocence. It's, it's a beautiful poem, but it's really too long. I wanted to pull out some passages. And I don't know what brought me to this poem. Something did. And then I thought, how, how perfect. This is actually better for Advent. And you'll see why in a minute. Um, there's nothing explicitly Christian in this. And I, in some ways, it doesn't meet what we set out to do is the, to, to, to see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. It doesn't fit even in that category. But there's something appropriate to Advent in it. And so I thought I would um, read, do this today. And I, I hope you'll see why in a second. Um, nothing explicitly Christian. What Yeats is doing is just describing a scene in which these if I remember 59, 59 swans are on this lake, this pool, was in an area, um, um, I think close to Lady Gregory's mansion. She was, um, um, what do you call it, a benefactor of, of artists in Ireland and um, very committed to helping with what was at that time called the Irish Renaissance. Um, Joyce and Yeats and Singh and a number of people. This is really important. I mean, you'll appreciate this because the same thing was going on in the South, here in the South, in America, that the Irish had reached a point where they really felt strongly that they had lost their language under the British rule and in conforming to the British way of doing things. And they realized that it was really important for them to recover their language, the dialect. And so all of them were doing these extraordinary things, to, and it was a way of recovering their identity as a people. Now think about how that important that was in the South with Faulkner, Tate, Donaldson, a number of people. They were called the, the fugitives because they had stepped outside of a Southern culture that had begun to conform with the rest of the culture. 
And one of the signs of that conformity is you begin to lose your dialect, those, those unique characteristics of a language that help you hold on to who you are because the pressures of conformity are everywhere so great. So Yeats was one of that group in Ireland. Lady Gregory was the benefactor of a number of those poets. <coughs> and, um, Yeats went on to be, I think, one of the two or three greatest poets of the 20th century. Um, I, I believe that Yeats and T.S. Eliot and Wallace Stevens, I, I don't think we've read any of Stevens, I think they're the three greatest poets of the 20th century. And in some ways, for me, the, the one that will stand the test of time is Eliot because of his Christian beliefs. It's one of the reasons a lot of intellectuals don't like him. But he's able to do things with language in a way that's not explicitly Christian. You, we've done some Eliot together. We did the Four Quartets um, mm -hmm. and some, some other poems. You see that Eliot is doing things other poets are not, and he's going to a depth of reality that other poets are not. So. Um, people disagree on this, but but certainly Eliot and, and Yeats and Stevens were the were the great poets. In this poem, Yeats is simply looking at these fifty nine swans and meditating on what he sees. And at the end, he he leaves us with this question. He wonders what they'll be doing. I want to just leave it at that, and then I want to say a word about it when I'm done because. It'll probably be missed if I don't. It's, I mean, it, who was it? Who was it, Nikki? I can't remember, Barbara. I, 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 um, when we were over there at the table, I think it was, was it you, Nikki? It said, it was you. She said, said, she was commenting on the difficulty of reading Milton and Dante, and I was saying Milton for sure, because Milton is so hard. But Dante's easy, and, and I think her comment was that she was going off somewhere to do something was, I know he's walking up a mountain. Which, you know, <laughs> I, I, by the way, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy your humility. I'm saying this honestly. I hope you know that, how much I was enjoying your humility. And I want to say this in your favor, in your favor. There's nobody today who could read Dante well um, because they wouldn't understand an allegorical method. Most people living at that time would have, or a lot of educated people would have, Ed, some educated people today would, the allegorical method that there are these levels of reality. But in your favor, and I don't want to underestimate this, Dante knew, and this is what the modern rationalist misses, God. Dante knew that you couldn't get to the other levels except through the literal. I've been talking about that all the way through Milton. What, what, do you start with an angelic mode or the common thing? My belief as humans that we miss something if we don't learn to start with the things right in front of us because we, we circumvent, we go past them, and then we, we, we miss the source of reality, the miracles, everything. We look, we look past miracles all the time. Um, the modern critic doesn't start with the literal level. He brings a system in his head and he imposes it on the work. He's not, he's not reading a work. If he did, he'd take the literal surface seriously. Because it's only in that literal that the other levels exist. Look past the literal, you're in your head. You can make of a poem whatever you want. That's so often what goes on. And we've been talking, in reality, you can make of reality. If you start in your head, by, by what means do you test what's there? You have, no, you're lost. So even though you were 
being modest, um, I was thinking, you know, even if you didn't know it, what you were saying is profound. We have to start with the literal, Dante's walking up a mountain, but all the other levels depend on our seeing that, so that's part of what we're, you know, we're doing, so. Anyway, um, so at a literal level, Yeats is just looking at these swans, okay? <clears throat> the wild swans at cool. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are ninety and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw before I had well finished all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I've looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight, the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams, or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old, passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build, by what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes, when I awake some day to find they have flown away. The question is why I chose this for Advent, and anyway, see in a second, because in some ways I just thought it was a lovely match, but... Um, anything stand out about these poems? Let me just ask, what, what season are we in? Autumn. What time of the day? Twilight. What's the water doing? Brimming. All right. How many swans? Fifty-nine. Everything that he looks at in the scene is about ready to complete itself. Fifty-nine. What was the? I'm missing something. Nineteen. The nineteenth autumn. You know, I should have. Nineteenth autumn. Everything he describes is approaching. Um, a whole number, 59, 19, it's autumn, the water's brimming. What's going on here in this poem? Everything's approaching a perfection. Will he ever see it? No, no. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful, among what rushes, by what lakes edge, delight men's eyes when I wake someday to find that they have flown away. He's watching something beautiful in the swans. They're extraordinary. Is he companionable, lover by lover? In some sense, you can say that the swans are an image of something great in men. Passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. I mean, they're no, you, you all know, if you've seen swans, that they're beautiful creatures. I think what he's describing is, um, or here, let me put it differently. How, 
can so many things in nature that are so different share the same quality that they're all tending towards a completeness a rounded number but aren't there how can they unless they all share something in being those those of you who are in the mass this morning actually heard father make what I thought was a really important distinction. He was making a distinction between consubstantial and one in being, because all things share in being. So if we talk about God as one in being with the Father, that means it's just one in being with Father and also other things. And it also could be one in being the Father, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could be three individuals separate, one, one among others. To make them consubstantial means they're one with each other in substance. So it was really important but all, how can all these things that are so different share this one quality, this one quality unless, unless they share the same being, that they're, something unites them in some way? So it seems to me what he's doing is showing that there's this wound in nature. There's this, nature has this tendency towards completion. All these things suggest a beauty that's about ready to complete, but it won't, you won't see it. Um, it's a beautiful poem, it's, a, it, it's as if you look, he's looking, as a poet, he's, gra- he's looking at the scene, and he's struck by the beauty of everything there, can't miss it, but all of it gives him this sense, um, I have looked upon those brilliant creatures, and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I hear in a twilight the first time on the shore the bell beat of their wings above my head. Nineteen autumn. He's seen them again and again and again and again. What what this says to me also, I don't disagree with what you've said, but um, is that everything is on the precipice and it's culminating and it's going to change. Because all of these things are sort of climaxing at the same time and then and then he says to light men's eyes when I awake someday to find they've flown away and so knowing that it's not going to always it's not going to be static it's going it's to not be going to be what static right it's going to be changing disappear and moving. It, it is yeah it's, it's going to change yeah so what it tells me is enjoy it enjoy seeing and for example, I was driving down Hall Johnson Road the other day, and all of these oak trees were absolutely spectacular. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the next day, gone. gone, gone. Right. And so you better be aware of what's going on now, because they're going to be flown away tomorrow. Yeah, but the, I just want to emphasize the point here is because he's not quite saying that there's a soreness. He's he's a, he's appreciating this beauty. But, but none of it will complete itself. I think that's one of the things, that none of it, it won't happen. And my reason for, for um, choosing this for this season is that um, we live with a wound. Being is wounded in our world. The, fall, the presence of the fall is with us. We have all these expectations of a completeness or a perfection. All of us carry it, you know. But it's, it's not a part of our condition. It's, we, we, we carry expectations, we want it, we long for it, the beauty of it, the perfection. Um, we get close to perfection, but not yet. 
Um, and the reason for choosing this is it's Advent. Yeats is not a Christian. I mean, he, he, um, he grew up in a Christian world. It was Irish. Um, but I, he's not a Christian. He, he developed his own system, way of thing, seeing things. He's not a Christian. Advent is a time of looking forward. Christianity answers this. I mean, a God came into the world. You know, the, one of the amazing things about Advent, I think, for all of us is, that, is the wisdom of the church. It placed Christmas in the dead of winter. Just when things, I mean, they're, they're not accidental in doing, these are amazing things. Christmas takes place in the dead of winter, in the cold, when it's freezing. We have no reason to hope, everything to complain about. You couldn't be farther away from anything perfect. If you want perfection, go to spring or summer. You know, winter can be harsh for lots of people. People die. You know, homeless die. Um, if our electricity goes out in the dead of winter, I remember a couple of years ago when the box behind us, I'd, I'd never had an experience, because in California, <laughs> it's temperate. You know, it was freezing here in Texas in the box outside, and we lost electricity for a day or two. And I mean, it was a funny, I'd never had that experience. I was thinking to Suzanne, what will we do if we had to survive this? And my only, my only thought is, if this ever happens, we go into one of the back bathroom, bathrooms downstairs because it's the warmest place in the house. <laughs> Find some place. The two of us could huddle up under blankets and keep each other warm. I mean, how romantic is that? Um, <laughs> but people die, you know, if they don't have these things. And um, you, you get spoiled. You, know, you think you take them for granted. And then the box of gun, in two days you don't have any electricity or gas. Um, anyway, it's a beautiful poem. It's a beautiful poem. Um, it's Advent. Um, our faith is that God came into the world to offer a perfection in himself and asked us to follow him. Um, uh, we're all sinners. We carry our sins with us, struggling to put them away. But we, but we live in a wounded world. It's, you know, there are all these intimations of immortality. Wordsworth's poem, intimations of immortality. There, we live surrounded by intimations of immortality, of perfection. They're all around us, these hints, these glimpses. But not that, that we wait on that in another kingdom. So... Wild swans. Okay, um, just a quick, quick review. Can you take out the tape piece, the symbolic imagination? I want to do just a very, very quick review. Um, for the last couple of weeks, I've, I've been putting the two worlds together before we leave Milton. Um, in an effort to try to sharpen the distinction between the Protestant Catholic sensibilities. Um, and, um, oh, by the way, I wanted to just, this is a, on a personal note. Um, Suzanne can verify this. For months, while I thought about whether or not to do this, I had real misgivings about doing Milton, real, real misgivings. There's, there's so many things going on in Milton that to me are full of problems. It's, it's a beautiful poem. Most people are not going to deal with... Who's going to 
who's going to ask if Milton's treatment of angels is believable? You know, most people just read it. And, um, and, and who's going to point out that everything that, so much of what Adam gets is he gets through two angels. You know, but people are not going to deal with those things. They, they've always troubled me. I've always, to me, it's a beautiful, beautiful poem, but there are things that he does that, that deal with metaphysical issues that are, that are troubling. So I had real misgivings. But after I did the, um, the, the Reformation background, after we did that together, and then started looking at the poem and trying to wrestle with some of these naughtier things. I was really grateful. So I just want to say thank you all for going through that with me. Because I'm not kidding how important that's been for me to put that together more clearly in my mind. Um, and my hope is that when we get through with Dante, it, you will be helped in your faith because you've got two things standing next to each other as a way of sharpening the contrast between them. So it's a really, I think what we're doing has a real value to it, more, more, than, I, more than I anticipated going into this, because I had real misgivings. <coughs> Thank you for gathering to this question. I know. <laughs> get on, get on, get on. <laughs> Just quick, quickly, <laughs> quick. Take a look at Tate, remember that um, what, what Tate is doing in these two essays, by the way, both of these essays are in a collection of his, it, it, um, edited by Louise Cowan. It, it, Tate's one of the most extraordinary men in the 20th century in, in relation to literature. He's just got a, such a good mind. He wrote an essay on the, on the angelic imagination, and he wrote another essay on the symbolic imagination, and I've taken the quotes from that one. C.S. Lewis and Tate were together, there was no collaboration on this, in believing that one of the most important things we could do for ourselves in the modern world is form emotions, better emotions. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. That um, the emotions in our world tend to get stuffed. Nobody takes seriously today <coughs> ordering the emotions. You, you know that it's not a small thing for me. After we did Dante a year ago, um, when we hit the purgatorio, I remember being, trying to be really clear about it. I think the great task for all of us is to learn to order our emotions. God made everything good. He made us to love. You, those of you who, who did the Commedia before know that at the center of the Commedia, Dante says through Virgil, the source of all evil is love. God made nothing bad. There's nothing evil. That's a Manichaean view. God made nothing bad. The Protestant mind radically changes that because they said after the fall, the effects of the fall were complete. We are corrupt. We're depraved. Completely evil. The Catholic Church says, no, you can't destroy an essence. God made us good. That's an es man, the essence of man, humanity. The essence, our essence is good. We are terribly wounded. The concupiscence is so deep it can overwhelm us. I know that myself. I'm assuming most of you do. If you, I, I laugh about it when I think, um, when we come out of confession, I think most of us think I'm, I'm good again. And three days later, <laughs> there they are again. There they are again. <laughs> um, so, 
um, concupiscence is heavy with us. I mean, it, it, I can understand why somebody would say we're depraved, but um, the great task facing us is how to order our emotions, how to love well. St. Augustine's phrase was, at the, at the beginning of this, remember, was um, ordo amoris, on the very first page of the top. Augustine defines virtue as ordo amoris. Virtue is ordinate, well-formed emotions. A virtue is, virtue, the word virtue means a power. It's a habit, a way of doing something. The more we work at it, the more we become that, whatever that virtue is, temperance, prudence, you know. So the great challenge facing us is how to order our emotions. The source of evil is love. We love the wrong way. We love bad things. We don't love enough. The people who make, you know, who, who today justify, say, homosexual marriages because it's based on love don't understand the nature of love. Love by itself isn't good. I mean, in God it is. But in us, it's disordered. We, we have to struggle to form ordinate loves. So that's one of the major questions. And the, the reason for bringing, I mean, it's, it's at the center of these pieces. It's important because if we don't see, if we don't learn to see the truth, how can we learn to make changes in ourselves? We can't. The, the basic premise of the Divine Comedy, remember, Dante wants to climb this mountain. Virgil says, no, you have to go down. Why? How can he change his sins if he doesn't see them? I mean, how, how, how can we begin to work on those things if we're not aware of them? Um, and how well do we listen to other people when they bring them to our attention? You know, stubbornness, blindness, willfulness. Um, so, this isn't a small issue. Um, and what's at issue, it, if, if changing our hearts, helping working to become better in our hearts depends on our minds, how well we see something, then this whole question of where we start, angelic minds, ordinary minds, what we see is really crucial, okay? Tate is making the argument that Dante starts with the ordinary thing, with the thing right in front of us. Remember, he gives as that example the, the, that incident involving St. Catherine when she receives the head of that, ex, that man who was executed. I just wanted just to quickly review, to read over this quickly. Bit, bottom of page four. This is the simple secret of Dante, but it's a secret which is not necessarily available to the Christian poet today. The Catholic faith is not changed since Dante's time. Our faith is the same. The dogmas are the same. Um, but the Catholic sensibility, as we see it in modern Catholic poetry from Thompson to Lowell, has become angelic. And it's not distinguishable, doctrinal differences aside from poetry, by Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, and atheists. I take it that the more I take it that more than doctrine, even if the doctrine be true, is necessary for great poetry. Catholic quotes have lost along with her heretical friends, the power to start with the common thing. They have lost the gift for concrete experience. One of the reasons I've been doing this is, you know, because poets work in the concrete world, they don't work in a world of abstraction. They always return us to the world to help us to see what's there, because so often we miss it. A four-year-old girl, a bird flying in the sky, 
to, re to help us to see that something's going on immediately in front of us, some miracle. Are we awake to it? Do we see it? Um, middle of page five, the gift of analogy was not Dante's alone. Every medievalist knows the most striking proof of its diffusion. The most useful example for my purpose that I know is the letter of St. Catherine to brother Raymond of Capua. Capua. A young Sienese, Niccolo Tudo, had, just, had been unjustly convicted of treason and condemned to death, unjustly. Catherine became his angel of mercy, giving him daily solace, the meaning of the cross, the healing powers of the blood, so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted. He was going to die unjustly. I'm sure he was angry. She helped him reconcile himself to an unfair death. The meaning of the cross, the healing powers of the blood, and so reconciled him to the faith that he accepted his last end. Now I have difficulty believing people who say that they live in the blood of Christ, for I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. Whether they do now is another thing. How many of us live in the blood of Christ as we understand it, Christ fully present, fully human, fully divine? Not as an abstraction in our head, not an idea actually present in the concrete thing. For I take them to mean that they have the faith and hope someday to live in it. The evidence of the blood is one's power to produce it, the power to show it in a common thing and to make it real, literally, in action. For the report of the blood is very different from its reality. We can talk about something. It's not the same thing as actually participating in it. St. Catherine does not report it, she recreates it so that its analogical meaning is confirmed again in blood that she has seen. This is how she does it. Then the man came like a gentle lamb and seeing me he began to smile and wanted me to make the sign of the cross. When he'd received the sign I said, down to the bridle, my sweetest brother, for soon thou shalt be the enduring life. He prostrated himself with great gentleness and I stretched out his neck and bowed me down and recalled to him the blood of the Lamb. His lips said, Not save Jesus and Catherine. And so saying, I received his head in my hands, closing my eyes in the divine goodness and saying, I will. When he was at rest, my soul rested in peace and quiet and in so great a fragrance of blood that I could not bear to remove the blood which had fallen on me from... Imagine a number of other women in that scene. I mean, they would probably go hysterical. You know, the blood drip, a head executed. She's at peace, absolutely at peace. How does she do that? If it isn't that her faith is so completely there. The, I mean, you know all those images we get in the Bible with Christ on the water, or Peter, better yet, Peter on the water. When he says, I can do it, you know, walks out, and then it starts getting rough. When things go wrong in our families, in our relationships, when something happens, how steady are we walking on the water then? You know, I, I, I so, I'm so grateful for this scene of her taking his head and um, the great faith that she has to embrace it, not be afraid, um, because in every fiber of her being, she knows he's with Christ. Just a beautiful one in the concrete experience. So, this, you know, where do we start, common thing or not? <coughs> Just very quickly, 
Um, I'm going to touch on these as, as quick, quickly as I can. What are the differences between, fundamental differences between, um, the, the Protestant and to sum up, just quickly to review. I've kind of lost it. Where are they? Sorry. I just had this. What did you do with them? <laughs> I know that's why she came by me. <sighs> Quick review. This is what, what happened? My, the notes for just a string. I just had it here because I put them on the board. Sorry, you guys. This is becoming more and more daily. Oh, it is. It's just getting worse and worse. I want to take a look very briefly at just a number of categories dealing with differences. In terms of authority, the fundamental differences between the Protestant and Catholic you know that generally speaking, um, the source of the authority for a Protestant rests in his individual faith. So the subject of experience, there's no way to account for it. That's why the Protestant world tends to fragment. People have differences and they break off. The fact that they're dealing with contradictions doesn't phase them. Um, there's no way to test that experience. The Catholic believes in the objective truth um, of Christ in the church. Christ is present there. Um, the proof of it is in scripture. We saw that in, the, in that scene that we've gone back to a number of times involving Christ with Peter. And he says, who do they say? And we've gone over that a number of times. In the Protestant world, each person becomes the arbiter of his own life. Um, his faith isolates him. It makes him private. There's no way to enter into it. In the Catholic world, because of the objectivity of that truth, it gathers people around. People become a part of a mystical body. You can say that the one says, I, the other says, we. We are a part of a communion, and we are parts. It's closer to what Paul talks about when he talks about parts of a body. Um, so um, there, there's a greater tendency in the Protestant world um, to follow its own will. Um, um, if a Catholic is living his faith, it, it, there should be a greater tendency in the Catholic to, towards docility or obedience, that that's Christ. Um, we're asked to participate in his cross with him. 
the Protestant tends to think of that cross, that the crucifixion as being over, it's done. That's why they can say I'm saved, it's, it's a completed act. For the Catholic, it's an ongoing act, to pick up your cross, to, to deny yourself, to keep going. Um, the ways of knowing involve fundamental differences, ways of knowing. We saw the, the Protestant faith tends to be platonic, since it starts with an act of faith and it makes that everything, it's sufficient to itself. It starts with an act of faith that, that um, circumvents the world, goes around it. It's lost its way into the natural order. The natural order to the Protestant is depraved. For the Catholic, he begins with a common thing, the ordinary thing in front of him. Um, that's nowhere more true than in the Eucharist. The extraordinary thing about the Eucharist is it's an ordinary thing. It's, a, it's, it's grape and flour. It's wheat. Um, it's the stuff that God made. But we believe that in that bread and wine, that very ordinary thing, this is stunning, that very ordinary thing is God in all of his divinity. So that in itself is significant of a whole different way of looking at the world. If you take that as the center, it's a, an exemplar, an illustration of a, a way of life. It means every, every concrete experience in some way has God behind it. He was the creator of it all. Christ is the redeemer of it all. Do, or do we see this act of redemption going on all the time? Or how much do we just get in our heads? And I mean, this whole thing about blindness, you know, when the blind guy came to Christ... We think blindness is literal. I th it's true, I think he's probably literally blind, but I, I think the issue is a greater one for all. How well do we see? You know, it's been a concern for me all along. How well do we see? Do we really see the wonder in things? Kids do when they're young, yeah? When you read fairy tales, my, our oldest son right now is having a crisis with his daughter. She feels like um, they lied to her about Santa Claus. She's really angry. Um, I want to have a talk with her because <laughs> I believe I've always believed in fairy tales. I think fairy tales are an extraordinary source of wonder. You know, I, um, I remember when we were younger, and I, Amy, our oldest daughter, reached a point when she was twelve. I can remember the scene vividly, and I went to Amy and I said, "Do you believe in dragons?" She said, "Absolutely not." Twelve, too grown up. I believe, you, this, you're going to hang me on this thing, but I believe the dragons are an image of Satan. We have to find a way of imaging, this is Milton, we have to find a way of imaging Satan. Satan is an angel. He has no body, so he's there and, you know, angels aren't limited by physical reality the way we are. They're like mine. They can be here and there. Um, and, and they're destructive. The light, that is a source of light, for us from God is turned into fire for those who refuse that light. Is that clear? That's why hell is so often imaged in terms of fire, that the light that God offers when it's refused becomes a flame, a source of punishment. What does the fire breathe, or the dragon breathe? Fire. Anyway, Amy didn't. I've always believed in them. I still will. I will till I die because I believe in evil. I believe evils. I, I, one, I get really upset when I see all these movies about taming a dragon. You know, the modern world want, wants to take away evil. It wants to make everything sweet and nice. If you make everything sweet and nice, then what do kids do when they confront evil? How, how in the world do they deal with it when they have to deal with it? Just, 
Anyway, um, Amy believes in dragons right now. Uh, two years ago we had a birthday and I found a dragon and gave it to her and wrote a note. She cried. She just cried. She loves dragons. She's got them in her, you know, wherever she lives, she has a, she has a dragon. Um, sources of knowing. The Protestant tends to be platonic in its mindset, the way that it looks at things, tends. The Catholic tends to be Aristotelian, to start with ordinary things, the concrete things, to take them seriously. The sacraments. Um, the sacraments were, um, they, they continue, they continue to bring Christ's power for healing into the world with an efficacy now. That's what the sacraments are. Um, marriage, um, confirmation, healing, the sick, you know, orders, um, all of those, they have a sacramental quality be because it's a way of saying Christ is present in your life actively. It's important to know that. How often do we take all that for granted? All the time, I think. Um, the, the Protestant world, by and large, tends to take the sacraments away. That's not true of the high Protestant church, but certainly for the low it is. And I, we saw it before. We saw it in Melville. We saw it in Faulkner, that when, when you lose the sacraments, Christianity gets reduced to a moral code. It gets very legalistic. It gets Old Testament. That quality is pervasive in the Protestant world, this Old Testament. Or, or in some sense, the Protestant world tends to accommodate down. To the, to the temporal, um, and it moves towards something legalistic, a code. Um, for the Catholic, it should, I don't think it does enough, but it should always be a reminder that a gift is being given to us, that the miraculous is present here, it's at work. If it does reduce to a moral code, you know the dangers. We saw this in Melville, we saw it in uh, Faulkner. If it reduces to a moral code, um, it reduces to a, um, a kind of respectability. The only way a Protestant has of measuring his faith is his respectability, how decent he is. So the tendency in the Protestant world is to accommodate the world. It moves towards respectability. But we've seen that. When, if that becomes true, that world becomes enabling because people hide behind it. You won't do certain things. You don't have the courage. The Catholic is called to holiness. That's a very, very different thing. To, to, to take seriously a call to holiness means you, you can put yourself against your family. We should. That's what Christ asks of us. I come to divide mother, daughter, father, son. Said to the man when he said, come follow me, and he said, let me bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Um, I take that to mean the guy's half dead already because he says, let the dead bury that if, if you're making your family more important than Christ, there's only some half, something half-living in your life. So the tendency of our world, we've been doing this since the Iliad, is enabling. America, I think of America as an enabling country right now. Everything about the country is enabling. So one of the dangers is that, is that evil can use respectability. People can hide behind it. They won't deal with problems. To, to go against them puts you at risk because it means being unpopular. You have to do things other people are not going to like it. You're going against the social code. 
to, to be holy means to give up the world and follow Christ in the purity of his spirit. Um, so those are some of the major categories. The last one I'll just return to this authority. In the evening class, there's a young woman who's a middle-aged woman who's Anglican. I'm so proud of her. She has stuck this through. I'm, I'm just actually amazed. She's like somebody else I know. I just, I have, I, for Sue, I feel the same thing. You cannot know the depth of my admiration. Um, and she's been very kind. I mean, very open and not defensive or touchy at all. Um, but last week she said, we're, we're in agreement on all these things except fallibility. And I wouldn't have touched on it, but I was glad she did. And I just, I want to go back to this because it touches on this authority. Why did, why did Christ give Peter the keys? That's, I hope everybody sees that's an extraordinary authority. Who you loosen, you loosen, who you bind, you know, here on earth, on, in heaven. Who, who knew the extent of evil better, Christ or Peter? I mean, no difficulty, right? Christ would have known evil infinitely better than deep, more, greater depth than Peter would have. I think he gave Peter the keys. He, he vested that kind of authority in him because he knew exactly what the church was going to have to face in the world when he was gone. How well will the church deal with evil? Number one. And number two, how well will it hold on to doctrines if it doesn't have that authority? I'm really serious about this, just for a second, hold on. Father talked about Arianism this morning. I've talked about Arianism, Sabellianism. Luther, Calvin did away with the sacraments. We've got Wycliffe, all wanted, they wanted to do away with the orders. Remember when that happened, the authority was vested in a congregation. So that over time, if a congregation came to a point of deciding that women should be priests, or homosexuals could marry, that it had the sanction of law, who's to say differently? Take away infallibility, how well would the church have dealt with Arianism, Sabellianism, Donatism, Luther? I mean, look at, look at what we do, to, look at what we've done to Christ all of our history. Look at the corruptions in the church today. Imagine if that authority were thrown over to congregations in the Catholic world. What would happen to our doctrines? How would we look at Christ? Because some people were absolute in their convictions, Christ was a man. Others were absolutely certain in their convictions he was the father come down in another mode. It was only a few people said, no, 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 he's both. He's a human and God at one. Lose that and you lose Christ. Imagine what would have happened to the Eucharist, to the sacraments. Take infallibility away. How well will people deal with whatever the world comes up with? Particularly if if large numbers of people happen to agree with that. In the sermon this morning, you know, he was talking about, um, not Anastasius, but Ambrose. Who? Yeah. Ambrose, thanks. He was talking about Ambrose and said, the <laughs> Constantine embraced Christianity in its Arian form. And the vast majority of people believed Arianism was the correct view. If church doctrine had been decided by majority vote then, where would we be? Where would the church be? Take away infallibility. Take away the authority the church has. 
How well do we deal with evil? Or how well do we deal with the tendency in us not to read well, to make things other than they are? So this whole, you know, these major areas that were always at issue in, in everything that was happening in, during, the, during the early struggles, during the Reformation, we still struggle with them. They're, 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 I was asked to help out at USF when I was teaching at another college in California. Almost the entire um, Jesuit body of theologians in the religious studies department were following liberation theology. I, I know a priest, or a, actually is a guy who was a priest who left the priesthood at the at College of Notre Dame where I was teaching, who explained all the miracles away. He said, we don't believe that anymore, it's not true. Um, and there are lots of, the, and lots of theologians, I, even on that one sheet that I, if you look at the, the one with the circles, find that if anybody has this, it. This one right <coughs> No, this, it's the, it's the... Oh, the, yeah, oh, it's okay. Read the bottom, can you? Is it funny? I don't think so. Okay, and it's characterized the Protestant world. The church becomes human institution, the reading of scripture, a merely private affair, and a life of faith based on sacraments gets reduced to a moral code. As one Anglican priest put it, such phrases as the bride of Christ or body of Christ to convey the idea of possession of absolute truth and superhuman authority is the language not of mysticism but of emotional sentimentality, sentimentalism. It is unlikely that the world will ever be impressed by such phrases again. Either Christ is present fully as man and God in the Eucharist, or he is not. And either he gave the keys to Peter, or he didn't. But the difference as they affect the way we look at the world and Christ's presence in his church and the miraculous is real. Okay. <clears throat> I want to be careful. If any of you don't have that, part of that belongs to a quote. And what follows it is my words. The, the Anglican priest says this, such phrases as the bride of Christ or the body of Christ to convey the idea of the possession of absolute truth and superhuman authority is the language not of mysticism but of emotional sentimentalism. That is, he wants to do away with it. That's an archaic language. You get to have absolute truth? Take absolute truth away. What happens to all of this in the church? I mean, this is frightening. This is an Anglican priest. It's unlikely that the world will ever be impressed by such phrases again. He looks at that as an, we belong to an, an anachronistic past. It's, an education will know better. Nobody, nobody has absolute truth like that. Religion is more a matter of our own private conscience. He wants to see that stuff done away with. Body of Christ, bride of Christ, are you kidding? So my comment following his quote, either Christ is present fully as man and God in the Eucharist, or he's not. He either gave the keys to Peter or he didn't. But the difference is they affect the way we look at the world and Christ's presence in his church and the miraculous is real. The differences that we're talking about are absolutely real and important. So, um, anyway, and, and to go back to the, my example, um, when I was at USF, the larger majority of um, Jesuit priests were a part of a liberation theology movement that had sort of 
taken a strong foothold in the church back then at that time and, and looked at the world in, largely in Marxist terms. And um, there was a group of people at USF who wanted to establish an institute, it's called the Institute, as a way of holding on to the traditional beliefs because the liberal theology was taking over the schools and its thoughts were flying right in the face of everything we're talking about. That's from the Catholic Church. Um, there are lots of Catholic priests who hold these doctrines today. I mean, they laugh at the mystical stuff. This belongs to a world of superstition. So the issues are not small. You know what we're talking about. They're really big. And this question of authority is not a small one. Particularly if, if you live in a democracy where the assumption is, I'm as free to believe whatever you want. Whatever I believe is just as good as what you believe in. And truth is relative and subjective. And so. Okay. That's just a, a quick overview um, of um, some of the things that we've been looking at when we did Milton and did the work on the Reformation. Um, now we are entering Dante's world. Just a, a couple of things. One is, um, I, I know this is repetitive for some of you who've been here. Um, one of the claims that I've made from the beginning is that there's a prophetic element to great literature, not all of it, but the really great literature, that something has been given to these poets um, to give them a depth of vision that other poets don't have. And one proof of that is, is um, Homer and Virgil. Those of you who did the Iliad and the Odyssey will know it. Um, Homer wrote the Iliad, the Odyssey, Virgil, the Aeneid. Those are the three great epics, the three great epics of the ancient world. How could those men have written epics very, very different? Homer's dealing with honor in the Iliad. He's dealing with marriage and nostos, a homecoming. Nosto, nos nostalgia, going home. Virgil's writing about this um, this new city the, and the pietas, this, the virtue of piety, the love of the gods. And if the differences aren't clear, let me just give this example. You know that at the end of the Iliad, those of you who've read it, know that once Achilles accepts his own death and he goes back into the war, nobody can stop him. He has nothing to be afraid of. Once he accepts, I, I take that as a paradigm. Once any of us accepts our death, Whatever fears paralyze us, fade off. We also know that when he kills, that there, Homer, Virgil's critique of Homer is that the Greek world is too individualistic, far, far too individualistic. The Roman world has a much stronger sense of a common good. It's one of the um, things, the qualities that distinguishes those two worlds. When Achilles go back in the war, he will kill people right and left without giving them a thought. He's this great heroic figure. At the end of the Aeneid, you remember when Mezentius, who's this brutal, brutal king, he, if you remember the, the Aeneid, when Mezentius, he was the king, punished people, he would put their bodies together and tie them together and let them rot into each other. His son, Lausus, was a better man, as a prince, and Lausus goes up against um, Aeneas in one of the last battles. And Aeneas kills this young boy. And his response to the killing of this, I was talking with father about it, that's what brings to mind, because he said today was a, 
the anniversary of um, Pearl, Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Thanks, Nikki. Pearl Harbor. And he was talking about his father's response to the Japanese. Remember when they were incarcerated here and the difficulties, and and it it brought to mind the Aeneid for me because in the Aeneid you remember when Aeneas fights Lausus when he kills him he's almost in tears he kills him and he says to the Etruscans I can't remember the the, the group that that the boy was identified with but he said to his soldiers pick him up and honor him carry him off and I've always looked at that as the response we're meant to have towards our enemies Christ love our enemies I was saying that to father and we were we have to go to war at times when we don't want to and kill people. But I don't think the attitude should ever be complete like that because then it does something to you. We have to enter a war prepared to defend our country, to kill if that's what we have to do, and somehow still not let hatred and viciousness and, you know, we have, we have to take a life, but in a different spirit. And I've never seen that presented as well as I have in the Aeneid. Um, where is it going? Um, there's this prophetic quality to the ancient epics. Um, how did each one of those poets, Homer and Virgil, write these extraordinary stories and all have them end with the parousia action? The parousia is the second coming. It's an intimation of the second coming, the parousia. Because every one of those epics ends with the return of the king. What does fellowship of the ring end with? The return of the king. What does Dante, when Dante gets to the top of Purgatorio, he will be crowned. Dante's image for every one of us is when we return to heaven, we will be crowned in mitre. The church, in our baptism, we crown you. Priest, prophet, king. Every one of us was meant to have complete authority over ourselves that we share with each other. So how did they do that? There's a prophetic quality. This was before Christ came. That's extraordinary. They got that because they had some sense that that was natural in the human being. Otherwise, how could they have done it? They, they saw it. there's something... <clears throat> Man's capable of this extraordinary heroism. The cost of it? His life. Nothing less. There's, I believe, I personally believe, there's nothing all of us want more than a heroic life. I believe that for all of us. I also believe nothing is harder. Nothing is harder. Why do we honor the saints? Because they live that life. They give their lives up completely. So there was something prophetic in these men. And I, to me, they didn't have Christ there, but their understanding of our human nature, by nature, what's in us, was so deep, they understood the implications of what it meant to be human. Otherwise, Homer could not have done the critique he did, or Virgil, or, and Dante's learned from them, and we see the same thing in him. So there is a prophetic element, this side of prophecy, is what I'm saying. We, you know, I'm only repeating what you that there's something prophetic in great works of literature. These poets see something that most of us don't. So, um, there's a prophetic quality. By prophecy, you know, I've said this before. Prophecy doesn't mean telling the future. It means seeing in depth. 
Flannery O'Connor says, it's taking a point up close and seeing its extensions at a remove. So it's through the concrete ordinary thing that we see depths and distances. Prophets are those people who tell us those things we don't want to hear. They reveal to us things about ourselves that we don't want to see. That's why the Jews hated the prophets. That's why they always excoriated and sent them off, persecuted them. That's why Christ has a parable, I'm going to send my son. Remember, they killed all the other prophets off. Because the prophets always told the Jews what they were doing wrong. We don't like it when people tell us we're doing wrong. So prophets are those who see a greater depth of truth. St. Augustine says about prophecy, prophecy is essential to our life. God knew that the ultimate end of our life was union with him, salvation. He knew that we couldn't get to him without help. So he's, through prophets, he's given us the help that we need that we can't get from ourselves. Prophets are showing us those things that we can't get to on our own. God sent them because he knew that without them we couldn't get back to him. So one of the qualities of this poetry that we're reading is this prophetic quality. It's showing us a depth of character. It's showing us something about ourselves. Now the interesting thing about Dante, the way this lines up, is this. I know this is repeating for some of you, but Dante is born in 1265. The year 1265 was the date of the first burger republic in the West. First. The first commercial republic. We've got examples of the commercial repub or the republic and democracy in the ancient world. Greece was, Athens was a democracy. Rome was a republic, right? But neither one of them was based on commerce as the fundamental principle defining the regime. That's not so for America. We are a commercial republic. And, and it comes into existence right at Dante's time. The historical background is going to be really important in this. Because the, the commercial republic was able to break from the emperor and from Rome both and stand independently on, an own, on, it, on its own. The basis of that republic was each person could have a better life if he took responsibility for himself and tried to better it. So there's an incentive to do things. But it's based on commerce. We saw that in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, right? Are you all following? Mm -hmm. what, what, what defines the commercial regime is that we have a greater independence from emperor, from outside influence, the, the, the state and the church. Um, we have an incentive to try to, to try to better our lives by risking, by being resourceful to make our lives better. That's the very nature of the commercial regime. So the first kind, the first instance of the modern commercial republic is Florence. Now this is extraordinary because you know from reading that, or we will if you haven't, but when you read the Divine Comedy, the whole, the commercial regime gets exposed. There's not an aspect of it we don't see. And what we see is horror after horror after horror after horror. What motivates the commercial regime? Pride, envy. I want to get ahead. I don't like it when people have things I don't have. It drives people. What motivates most of us? Somebody else has something, I don't. I'm either going to take that person to jail or do something to get rid of him or, you know. And pride, I want to be better than other people. I'm not going to be left behind. So, um, 
So what we're what we're about ready to start together is Divine Comedy. It's Dante's un, unmasking the commercial regime because there there's not almost not an episode in, that takes place in the Commedia that doesn't have to do with the activities of people at that time. They're either killing each other over differences, and all of them have to do with party loyalties in in this commercial republic, whether they aligned with the guild the the um, the Ghibellines or the Guelphs or the Whites or the Blacks. I'll go into that next week. But. So there's this prophetic element. The literary tradition, we've already talked about it. Um, um, Milton, remember, um, I find the words. Milton darkened the whole literary tradition by, by presenting Satan the way he did. Because by present, making Satan the sort of epic hero, he, even though it was a parody, because he's the worst kind, what Milton was doing was indirectly casting a dark light on all the epic heroes. What he does is show that they were all in sin. Remember when the angels meet in the lake, the burning lake at the beginning? All of those demons were the prototypes of the ancient gods. So Zeus, Hera, Hephaestus, Athena, um, for Milton, those were emied, um, the, the source of all of them were the fallen demons. They were not the real God. They were false in some way. So Milton makes everything dark um, and he makes us question the epic hero. And you know that, remember late in the, late in the epic after Adam and Eve fell, that, the, that the, um, the virtues, the Christian virtues that replaced the natural virtues of the ancient um, epic heroes. Do you remember what they were? I'm sorry, I missed the, the question. Um, patience and endurance. Those were the virtues that would replace the... Sorry, did you, Fred, did you have a question? No, I just missed the question. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> anyway, you remember what I'm talking about when he, when he said that, remember when he, when he talked about writing an epic about heroic things and he said it doesn't and he talks about the Christian virtues that are going to replace it. For Milton, the virtues were patience and endurance. Um, for the ancient epic, right, the pagans, they were courage, fortitude, prudence, you know, Odysseus prudence. It's the natural virtues in our nature. Um, um, and moreover, the great virtue of the Iliad is Kleos. 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 It's honor. Remember in the, in the Iliad, everybody thinks they can get honor by defeating, by killing. It's a rival, there's a competitive, a competitive. You're only as good as, as you show yourself to be superior to somebody else and get rewarded for it. So why do, why do people give more money for people in high-paid jobs? It's a way of showing them they're better. Mm -hmm. So the basic understanding of that war, what keeps that war going on, what fuels it, is this false sense of honor. That some people are better than others and they will be rewarded. Well, if that's true, what happens is if somebody can confer honor on you, it can be taken away. What happens when you lose it? You become a great boss, CEO of a major company, what happens when it goes down the tube? Who are you then? I mean, lots of people, and we know of instances of 
people who committed suicide. I mean, you, where, what, if your identity is taken up with that, what are you then? Achilles comes to that point, remember in book nine where Agamemnon sends an embassy offering all those gifts to get him back in the war, and he says, to me they're the greatest lines in the work. He says, such honors a thing I need not, I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's come to a point of realizing that something conferred on him by God is worth far more than what these men can confer by gifts. So what, what we come away with from the Iliad is the sense that there's this intrinsic dignity in man. This intrinsic, and it's, there has a transcendent quality. It, it somehow relates us to the gods. And we also know that it isn't until a man dies accepts his death, that he can come to it. Because until that time, he's afraid he might lose something. When Achilles goes back into the war, there's no fear. So we, we see, this is it, we've talked about this. The, it's amazing how this lines up with the Old Testament, you know, the Genesis and Exodus and the other books. This comes into existence <laughs> roughly then. What Homer's showing us is the, this intrinsic dignity to the human person. In the Odyssey, the virtues are the virtue. The great virtue is nostos and prudence. Nostos, the homecoming. Odysseus has to get home, but we know that he can't get home to Penelope until he undergoes all his trials at sea, and most of them have to do with metaphysical realities and largely dealing with women. So, if the Iliad is a critique of men and the way men use others as objects, because that's what they do to get ahead, they they see other people as objects. Has anything changed in 2,000 years? I don't, I don't believe so, not at all. In the Odyssey, we see the way in which women can use men for their own homes. We see it um, in, particularly in the underworld with the queens of the underworld, but even Athena says it. That, so we see Odysseus developing a new virtue. He has to learn to be wise. To be, he's not Achilles. He's, he's not gonna go home and just kill the suitors. He puts on a, in fact, there's a quality of self-effacement to him that Achilles doesn't have. He has to put on a mask, pretend to, to be somebody he's not, to give up his identity before he can come home to his wife. So there's a, a change in the direction of humility, of self-effacement in everything that Odysseus brings to a marriage. And the same thing's true of Penelope. She's had to endure a lot for 20 years. She's had to endure a lot. So... If you, if you remember the marriages, Nestor with his marriage, Menelaus with his marriage, and then you've got um, Penelope in a dispute. There's a different quality to the marriage for all that they've learned to suffer. And if you remember at the end, when they go to bed, Athena stops time. They are, they are brought out of that heroic action. They are removed from it. And for a moment, they're outside of time. So this whole thing of nostos, of going home, is not just a wealthy home, not full of wealth. It's the love that can take place between a man and a woman and showing, once again, the cost of it, how hard it is. In Virgil, it's Rome, this universal city in which all men can come together. And we see the cost of that. It, it, it's vicious. All the people that he meets in Italy are racial, so they're killing each other because they won't let go of their racial identities. Rome is that city in which racial identity doesn't prevent somebody from coming together and being with others. Those are the ideals behind modern America. Where do they go? They all go to Dante 
but they're transformed by Christianity, an inherent sense of human dignity, supported by Christ. Nostos, what's our final home? Here on earth? Mm -hmm. Our nostos, the homecoming, and interesting, in terms of marriage, in the, you know that the whole Bible keeps presenting the church as Christ's bride and us as, as the bride of Christ. I mean, the, so the, the whole notion of the church is put in terms of marriage. The, the whole, so he takes the, the, the theme of the Odyssey, the nostos, the homecoming, the spousal love between a man and a woman, to its ultimate, what's the ultimate nostos? It's not nostalgia, it doesn't mean going back. Our final nostos, our final home, is the banquet, the marriage banquet with Christ. And the final room, you'll see it when you do, in fact, Dante's even going to talk about who's Dante's guide? Virgil. The final home is that Rome that is the New Jerusalem, the universal city. So Dante takes that whole epic past, carries it forward, is true to it, and gives it a completely different spirit. So Dante's carrying the epic tradition forward. You know I've said this before. I, I think Milton is modern in lots of ways because of the problems. I think Dante's, Milton looks actually back to Homeric. What his, his treatment of the war in heaven to me is, to me is, it's, it's ridiculous, it's silly. Dante's more modern in this sense. Who does he take as his hero? Himself. Um, he, what he's saying is every man has a story, but this is our ultimate end. Everyone, and every one of us has got to deal with this. We have to learn to see our sins. We have to learn to correct them. That's purgatory. And having done that, we enter into this joy. So that's the commedia. I'm going to wait on the historical background until next week. Um, I want to take a look at just a couple of passages before we leave. Um, but any questions about, I know that that's a lot. Sorry, we have, we have to carry a lot forward because if we don't, we will miss a lot. We will just miss a lot, so. Any questions? <coughs> I don't even know what to do. <laughs> I'm always waiting for something. <laughs> Feel like a curve is about ready to come to me and I'm at the plate waiting to get a knuckleball or a curve or a <laughs> don't enc don't encourage him, Francis. Do not encourage him. I'll be ready next week. <laughs> You're ready now. I, I know better. There's an awful lot there I know. Don't hesitate if you've got something. Charlie, did you have something? No. I'm so glad we're doing Dante. This is he's extraordinary. I mean he really is extraordinary. It's like going through the it's like going through the whole catechism, except it make, makes it living. It really does make it living. It's not I ideas. It's a concrete experience. <laughs> did I read the passages from the stars with this group? I, know, I think I did. It with, did I do it with this group? The, each one of the canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, and... Uh, 
Did I do the stars already? Yeah, you did. Okay. Okay, good. And you remember my reason for doing that? I read the. I can't. Fred and Francis, I don't know if you were here, but every. You you can do it on your own. I don't don't want to do it now. But take a look at the very end of the Inferno, the end of the Purgatory, and the end of the Paradiso, because he ends returning to the stars. And I think that's Dante's way of returning us to the natural order, but that's his frame of reference. That that's 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 our ground. That's where we begin. Um, so let me let's begin. Um, remember, he ends. He ends. Actually, I'm gonna. Doc, can you find the end of the Purgatorio for me? I'll do the I'll do the Inferno. Here's the end of the inferno. Um, he's describing Satan. He will come out from having climbed up Satan, and he, he will come to the shores of purgatory. And then he'll say, this is page 191. You don't have to go there. My guide and I entered that hidden road to make our way back up to the bright world. We never thought of resting while we climbed. We climbed, he first and I behind, and tip through a small round opening ahead of us, I saw the lovely things the heavens hold, and we came out to see once more the stars. What's the what page do you have it? Purgatorio. The Purgatorio ends with this. Um, I am checked by the bridle of my art. From those holiest waters, I return to her reborn because he's just gone through purgatory, a tree renewed in bloom with newborn foliage, immaculate, eager to rise, now ready for the stars. When he, um, when he comes, when he finishes, completes his journey in the Paradiso, he, w- he will have just looked at the Trinity and see the ultimate mystery at the center of our faith, and, and he says there's no way to describe it, it's like squaring a circle, and the reason he's saying that is because the Son, who's, who shares an infinite nature with the Father and Holy Spirit, the Son now has a body. Because remember, Christ took on a body and returned. So how in the world is he going to... And notice he doesn't try, thank God. But he just looked at the Trinity and the mystery of it with Christ at the center, who's the Son, but now he has a human body and what he how he's going to describe it, doesn't he? But he looks at that and he says, um, so did I strive with this new mystery. I yearn to know how could our image fit into that circle? How could it conform? But my own wings could not take me so high Then a great flash of understanding struck my mind and suddenly its wish was granted. He sees that as a grace was given to him. At this point, power failed high fantasy. No matter how great the fantasy, Even though he was given it, graced, the mystery is too great to put into words. But like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. So in each canticle, at the end of that phase of the journey, he returns us to the net, that is to the common thing, the natural order. Just to return to that before we start looking at this, um, Dante starts with a common thing. He starts with himself, not angels or another person. Um, he starts with himself, and he starts with actual human beings. 
after he is pushed back by the beast, Virgil comes to him and Virgil will tell him that he's been sent to him because Mary saw the plight that Dante was in. She went to get Lucia, who's light, who went to get Beatrice, whom she knows Dante love, and she went to get Virgil because she knows um, Virgil's importance for Dante, and Virgil comes. So what we see is a whole divine order put into motion on the basis of love, that God works with what people love, that something is going on, because we don't see it, it's not shown. What we see is Dante going, this is Ghost of Nikki's, Dante's going up this hill, but there's so much more going on. Um, what was taking place, even if Dante hadn't seen it, was um, Mary was moved by him. She went to get help, Lucia and then Beatrice, because they're all within Dante's circle of loves. So we know from this, God is always working with what humans love. It can be a job, it can be baseball, it, you know, who knows what it is, it can be art. Whatever it is, God's at work there doing something. Um, um, let's go over to Um, I think I, I did this, but um, and the um, page nine, canto two. The day was fading, and the darkening air was releasing all the creatures on our earth from their daily tasks. And I, one man alone, was making ready to endure the battle of the journey and the pitied involved, which my memory unerring shall now retrace. O muses, O high genius, help me now, O memory that wrote down what I saw. Here your true excellence shall be revealed. You know that the ancient epics begin. Sing, muse, Iliad. It begins with an invocation. Sing, muse, the anger of Achilles' son, the Odyssey. Sing, muse, the man of many ways. The, the man with the cunning mind, the, the prudence to, to know what to do. Virgil, sing muse, um, the, um, sing a face fugitive, this man that the gods had attacked and kept him from his home. So every one of those ancient epics begins with an invocation of the gods. This epic begins with Dante struggling to get up a hill and we don't get to an invocation until here, why? Why does he do that? I, once again, I think it's because, did you have something? Mm -hmm. I think it's because he's starting with the common thing, not a, we don't start there. None of us does. What, we were born into the world, things happened to us long before we were ever aware whatever our parents do, some of the awful things they do, some of the good things, and then we reach a point where we're conscious of things and we can begin to see them, but there's always more going on before we ever know. Dante's starting with himself, where he is. And it isn't until Virgil comes to help him that he realizes he needs more help and asks, which is exactly the way it is in life. Isn't it? I don't remember any one of us being dropped out of our mother's womb and speaking an opening invocation. <laughs> coming out of a, 
<laughs> you're right. Good. God, that makes me want to write a story. Debbie, that's your assignment. Oh, God, I love that. That is perfect. God, that is brilliant. Why, thank you. <laughs> a, a new epic should begin there with a wah. <laughs> I really think, God. Because the whole epic has got to go into explain the meaning of that wah because there's so much in it. Anyway, he's doing the same sort of thing, I, th I think. Then Virgil relates what happened, um, but hold on, go the bottom of page nine. Virgil is talking with him about what happened. He said, from this journey you celebrate in verse, Aeneas learned those things that were to bring victory for him and for Rome, the papal states. He's starting a, or a, 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 a journey, and he's reminding Dante that, that Aeneas himself once started, you know, because Virgil wrote the Aeneid. Then later the chosen vessel Paul ascended to, to ring back confirmation of the faith, which is the first step on salvation's road. But why am I to go? Who allows me to? I am not Aeneas, I am not Paul, neither I nor any man who would think me worthy. And so if I should undertake the journey, I fear it might turn out an act of folly. You are wise, you see more than my words express. What does Virgil say to him? Stop whining and get up. <laughs> Has any one of us ever started on a hard enterprise without <laughs> making excuses? I mean, something really scary. Um, Virgil tells him to um, stop whining and get going, and then Virgil recalls what happens. Page 14, they come to the gates of hell. I'm the way into the Adolfo city, I'm the way into eternal grief, I'm the way to a forsaken race, just as it was that moved my great creator, divine omnipotence created me, and highest wisdom joined with primal love. Before me nothing, was, no, before me nothing but eternal things were made, and I shall last eternally abandon every hope, all you who enter. Go down. We are at the place where earlier I said you could expect to see the suffering race of souls who lost the good of the intellect. Now remember I said, we went over the contrapasso, right? Remember I said the contrapasso is the atmosphere of each level and it changes because it reflects, it's, it's a visible image of the invisible nature of the sin. So when you look at the atmosphere, it's as if you're looking inside a person and, and getting a visual image of what is invisible to us. So keep the contrapasses in mind always because they're really showing you, it's like a doctor reasoning from effects to causes. He's showing you what's caused this, what's wrong. Um, and remember, since we're in a world of final ends, the reason Dante's taken us here to final ends is because we're seeing exactly what's going to happen to all of us from our sins. This is what we carry. We either do something about it. Or this is this is this is what we choose. This is what we want. This is where we end up. It's important to pay attention to the contrapasso. It's important to pay attention to people's words, because like the contrapasso, the words will give them away always. This is the place where those are who have lost the good of the intellect. Their words will give them away. You'll always see there's something wrong with their minds and they don't see it. 
How could it be otherwise? If sin is a disordered state and this is the final end, and that's what they've chosen, everything will give them way. What they're doing, the contrapasso, their words, what they do with their mind. On page um, 17, Dante um, and Virgil come to the Acheron, which would be the stream that carries them over. Take a look at, at page 18. Out of the tear-drenched land, a wind rose which blasted forth in a reddish light, knocking my senses out of me completely, and I fell as one falls, tired into sleep. When Dante crosses the river Acheron, he's unconscious. Why? Because our first step into sin is always unconscious. We're never aware of it. Sin is a part of our condition. I can remember... I, I have conscious memories, is a better. I have conscious memories of my first sins. I can remember going into a store once and stealing a knife or something, and my mom catching me or somehow. And I don't know if they caught me and took me to my mom, or my mom caught me and took me back, but I had to go back. And then I'm not going to admit some of my other earlier sins right now. <laughs> the ones that I have right now are far, far worse. Um, but. Anyway, the only reason for saying that is I'm sure there was something already going on in me, even if I didn't know it at the time, because how did that first thing happen if there wasn't something already on its way, you know? So Dante's showing us that the first motion into the disordered hell, this, what, we're sh what hell is, is a picture of the disordered soul. It's the, it's the soul that each one of us carries that we're asked to purify. So here we see that the first movement into those disorders are, um, are unconscious. Um, we, we looked at Francesco, right? Yeah. Before, before we um, hear, um, the level of limbo are the virtuous pagans. They're not being, I, want, I just have to stress this because people can read over this and not give it a thought. To me it's too important because it's one of the defining distinctions between the Protestant and Catholic mind. Page 19. Let us descend into the sightless world, began the poet, his face with deadly pale. I will go first. Um, page 20, middle of the page. They have not sinned, but their great worth alone was not enough for they did not know baptism. These are virtuous pagans. They're not being punished. They're here because their virtues were not enough to get them into heaven. So Dante's acknowledging a good to people, but goodness by itself isn't sufficient because heaven is a supernatural condition. What's necessary for a supernatural condition? Supernatural graces. Faith, hope, charity. What these men lack all the souls here is a spirit of hope. Yeah? They, their souls aren't enlivened by a hope. A, a Christian is asked to hope. We receive that gift from God freely. He's asked to love when we don't have a reason for loving. Pagan wouldn't see that. Um, he's asked for believing something that he can't see. We're asked to have faith when we don't have a reason for having faith. Those are supernatural They take us beyond the world of reason. So here are all these virtuous pagans. Um, when, Dun um, when Virgil comes to this group on page 22, 
It's the shade of Homer, sovereign poet. This is top of 22. And coming second, Horus, the um, Ovid and Luchin, um, down below, greater honor still they um, deigned to grant me. They welcomed me as one of their own group, so that I numbered six among such minds. It's interesting that Virgil doesn't have the highest place, which only reinforces the point that I made earlier. He's there because Dante loved him so much. I also believe he's there because he, he's the consummate poet. He, he, there's almost nothing about the world that he didn't know, this side of grace. They come to this castle where there's a dim light. It's an image of the dimness of the light that the intellect provides. Nikki, this goes to your point. I'm really glad you said it. Um, the, remember, the literal is literally what happens. But on top of the literal is an allegorical level. So Virgil is an actual poet. He's real. But, and there are three levels. I'll go into this later once we get started. But the allegorical level has three levels. It's allegorical, tropological, and anagogical. Those are the three levels on top of it. I'll go into it later. But there are these other levels of meaning. Because that's true of every event in our life. There's, we're literally here. Allegorically, something else is going on. We're either moving closer to Christ or not. Or so Virgil is Virgil, but he's also an image of the very best that the human pagan world can give, allegorically. So the mountain is a mountain. It's, it's an image of all that we have to struggle to overcome to get to the sun, to God. The poem opens because it's that Dante's 35 years old. He wants, he wants to go to God. It's a longing for immortality. That's, what the, that's the allegorical meaning. He's climbing the mountain. So the mountain is an image of all that one has to overcome to get to God. And what we learn from the beginning is three beasts beat him back. A leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. Virgil said, you cannot go up there. You cannot go up till you go down. I'll never forget my, the teacher was my dissertation director when I was in the middle of my dissertation. And she kept saying, Bob, Bob, you've got to get this stuff to me. And I just was too embarrassed. I mean, if you knew one of my other sins, not a time of confession here, but the perfectionist in me, I admire her so much that I didn't want to get anything to her until it was special and well done. And she said, can we meet for lunch one day? And I said, sure. So we had lunch. And she sat down, she said, um, she said, you've read the Divine Comedy. She said, you know that before you, <laughs> you know before you go any farther, you have to go down. <laughs> it was her way of saying, <laughs> get your pride out of the way, you know, because she wanted to see that work. Because you know that, I'm sure most of you know that. We want everything to be perfect, and um, we have to learn to get that out of the way or we're stuck. So allegorically, it's a mountain, but he's being beaten back by th those three beasts because he doesn't understand that what Virgil's going to do now is show him those three beasts. So when you look at the, when you look at hell, um, here, here's the mountain, right? This is the mountain. What's he doing when he goes out into hell? He's actually dealing with that mountain, and he's going to meet these three beasts, the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf. That is, that is the sins of incontinence, first level, that is sins of weakness, and then the sins of malice and fraud. 
that produce a violence. The, the lion is the image of violence. All the crimes of violence you'll meet here. And the she-wolf, the cunning, are the sins of fraud. So Dante, Dante's got to learn to see those three aspects of the human soul. Our weaknesses, those things that are hard for us to do in a spirit of incontinence. You know incontinence like wetting them. Except some of our sins are sins that we have because of a weakness inside of us. Some sins involve a malice, a wanting to hurt. Those are the sins of violence. The darkest sins are the sins in most directly involving the intellect, the cunning, because what we see at the lowest level are the, are the sins of um, fraud. Using the intellect to make something so that's not so. So, um, so allegorically, it's a, it's a, Dante's trying to get up the mountain, but he's, he, can't, he can't go up that mountain until he knows himself better. Because climbing up the mountain rests on a principle of self-knowledge, of knowing oneself. I really, I've said this before, I really believe that why, one of the reasons Christ chose Peter and let him know about the prophecy, you will betray me. Because he knew he would. When he gave him, when he gave him the keys, he knew he had to know because he knew that Peter had to learn to see himself if he were ever going to be the first leader of the church. That he had, he had to learn to see that he, there were things about himself that he didn't see. He had to come to see as a man if he was going to lead the church. Um, so they come to, um, at the very end of this, um, the Virtuous Pagan on page 24, he comes to this little castle with a light in it. It's the dim light of the intellect and he says, and when I trained my eyes a little higher, I saw the master sage of those who know sitting with his philosophic family. He wasn't Plato. All gazed at him, all paid their homage to him, and there I saw both Socrates and Plato, each closer to his side. Who's the master? <coughs> Aristotle. Notice who's watching him? Socrates, Plato. Even though Socrates learned, sorry, Aristotle learned from Plato. And Socrates. Um, and remember in, in Canto 5 we saw Francesco and Paolo and we had our first experience of the, of the uh, Contrapasso. Let me stop here. We, we will pick up with um, Canto 6 and um, I'll try to cover the next eight because I'm going to try to do eight each week. So I think you can manage eight Cantos. It's, it's not that bad. Um, and I'm not going to do that rigidly. I mean, I may go forward a little bit and backwards a little bit. You know, I just, we're not in school. And still trying to figure out when I should give you guys your first test. Pop quiz. Did you send one? No, I'm going to be sending one. So, yes. I just need to be sure that everybody gets it. How you judge yourself against others, right? What? What? How you judge yourself against others? God, what a rascal.